0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Carpe Curious, my friends. I am Diana Kander, and you are listening to Professional AF, a show that documents my journey of seeking expert advice on a long list of things about myself that I want to improve. And hopefully the lessons that I'm learning each week are going to help you get to the next level of your journey. Today's a really special episode for me. Most weeks, I talk to experts about areas where I feel really deficient, big weak spots. But you know, you're not supposed to just work on your weaknesses. Sometimes it really pays to double down on your strengths and see just how much more you can grow there. And boy, did this conversation deliver. I spend my days working with companies on increasing their learning agility and their curiosity. And I wanted to see what new ahas I could learn on this subject. So this week I spoke with Brad Stotts, a professor at the UNC Business School and author of Never Stop Learning, Stay Relevant, Reinvent Yourself and Thrive. Brad also works with companies around the world to develop their learning and analytics strategies. He has won numerous teaching and research awards, including an award as one of the 40 most outstanding business school professors under 40 in the world and a prize for best article in the Harvard Business Review on leadership. And I learned about Brad's book from Adam Grant's Next Big Idea Club, a pretty prestigious collection of business books. Brad has been a venture capitalist, an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, and a strategic planner at Dell. And today, Brad is going to share with us why we're so bad at learning from our mistakes and three strategies that are going to help us get much better. Why our bias towards action is actually hurting our performance. Several counterintuitive tactics that are going to significantly increase your work results, how to run a meeting that encourages people to share their thoughts instead of shutting them down, and how to know if you and the people that you work with are actually good at learning. Get ready to hear me geek out over learning research in this incredibly valuable episode of Professional AF. Brad, do you know very many non-PhDs who totally geek out over learning? Uh, I, I know a few, research. not nearly enough, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm super excited to be here chatting with you. Uh, learning has to be just like curiosity in that when people first hear about it, they're like, oh, yeah, sure, learning, it's super important, but it's not like the most important thing. And I already do that. I, I'm a learner. Yep. So how do you get over that confidence and let people know like, hey, you're not as good at learning as you've think you are. Yeah.
2: Right. I mean, that's always a fun job to tell people they're not as good at things as, uh, as they'd like to be. <laughs> it's right. Best. You know, everybody wants you at the cocktail party uh, when that's what you uh-huh. do for a living. Uh, you know, I think the funny thing is, in, in, in some ways, it is like curiosity that when you get people to get past that first reaction of, oh, yeah, I know how to learn. I've learned since I was in elementary school and say, well, you know, tell me how you've spent your time this week. You know, what have you learned this week? What do you do differently? What have you innovated? And I think when people pause and and look at their lives, we realize, well, wait a second, like I am kind of doing the same thing. And, you know, why, you know, sometimes I'll pick an action if I'm working with a group, you know, tell me about a problem you solved recently. You know, how is that different than the way you solved it the week or the month or the quarter before? And they start to see, oh, yeah, we're stuck in the status quo. We're doing the same things over and over again. Um, and that provides that opportunity to unpack it a little bit and, and to start to kind of peel back the layers of the onion.
0: And how do we convince Organizations, and how do I convince the listeners of this podcast that this is the most important episode of the season? And they're going to learn so many important takeaways for their careers. How how do we do that? Yeah,
2: I mean, I I think, I mean, the basic uh, story is the only constant these days is change that we know the world is shifting dramatically around us. And so, again, if we take that kind of two minutes to step back and look around, whether it's with your job, whether it's with parenthood, whether it's with politics, I mean, think how different things look than even a year ago, let alone five or 10 years ago. And so once we accept that kind of uncertainty, ambiguity, shifting that's all around us, then we have to think about, well, how am I going to shift too? right? That I can't stay the same, that I've got to be able to adapt with that or else I'm going to become irrelevant. I'm not going to be in a position to thrive. And then that takes us back to learning, you know, what are the processes, what are the behaviors um, that we can you know start to adopt uh, in order to, uh, to better position ourselves?
0: Awesome. Well, I think the story of learning is the story of single loop learning and double loop learning. Yep. And I wonder if you have a good story to explain the difference between the two. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, that kind of core idea is one that Chris Argyris back in the 70s uh, really started to to highlight. Um and, you know, the the example of a single loop learning is we have problems we need to solve. I love work that's been done in the healthcare context that has looked at this, that kind of when things go wrong, you know, what do you do? Um, you know, the syringe you need isn't there. Um, do you not give someone the medicine they need? No, of course not. You find often another syringe, right? And it's the wrong size and you're having to eyeball to make sure you get the right medication. But that's kind of the single loop that you, you, you see the problem, you fix it immediately. Um, and, uh, you know, you adapt. That's uh, what Anita Tucker called as a workaround as we think about it, you know, double loop learning is getting at this idea of the root cause. Why didn't we have the syringe there in the first place? Um, You know, and so that's stepping back and actually maybe you have a supply chain problem. Maybe it's just, it wasn't brought from the supply closet. Maybe kind of nobody ordered it in the first place. Maybe all sorts of things that can go wrong um, with that. And I think it highlights one of our key challenges of really learning often means taking time, right? When we're in the moment, it's much quicker for us to grab something to kind of work our way around, forget about it. Um, Double loop learning is saying, hey, if you want to improve the system, improve yourself, then we're going to have to invest that time, which is hard to do.
0: So, I have kind of a silly story that I share to tell, to help people understand the difference between the two. And that is when I was in high school, I was trying to figure out how I was going to pay for college. My parents were immigrants who didn't have any money. And so I decided I was going to get a basketball scholarship to to go to school, having never played any organized sports, having never run a mile in my whole life. I mean, I had never held a basketball until that point. But I just, statistically, I thought there was more basketball teams in my high school than anything else. So I had the greatest likelihood of making one of those. Nice. And so, before tryouts, uh, the Not only did I not know much about organized sports, but I didn't know very much about health and nutrition. And so before tryouts, the only thing I did know was the Milk Does a Body Good commercials that were on TV all the time. So before the first day of tryouts, I drank like two large glasses of milk, like milk for breakfast, milk for lunch. And... That was ineffective. I'll just Sh- shocking, i just say I just say I spent most of the time in the nurse's office, like with a big with cramps from running uh, after drinking milk. And so the next morning, as I was reflecting on what had happened and what I needed to do, I was like, you know what? Clearly, the problem was I didn't drink enough milk. And so that day I drank like double the <laughs> amount of milk. I pretty much had almost a gallon of milk, no water that day. Oh. Then I show up to tryouts. And as we start running to start the day, I begin, the only way I can explain is like frothing at the mouth. I have a very thick mucus yeah. that forms nice. in my mouth. That's yep. what happens when you drink milk and not water. And so single loop learning is, you know, we're still like strategizing. It's not when you're not trying, because I was mm-hmm. trying. Oh yeah. And I was trying to think of the best thing I could, but I didn't have the wherewithal to be like, maybe milk propaganda is not like the best way to get myself ready for the basketball game. So why is it, you know, one of the things that Chris Harkiris would say is, it's really difficult for people who have been successful to get into the double loop, for people who haven't failed very much. Why is that so hard?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of reasons. Um, one is just around time that that we end up all being so busy uh, that we focus on what's right there in front of us, right? And so um, that you know, why try to get to those deeper points if the simpler ones have worked for you, right? If you'd thrown down that glass of milk and you'd gone out and made the team, then you know the fact that it had no actual <laughs> connection to basketball, right? Maybe you would would have been a natural, right? Yeah, uh, and so you would have drawn the wrong lesson from it, and so that that kind of time pieces is a big one. I think the second one is, is starting to get into some of those larger behaviors, right? That um, learning means... Uh, kind of a certain amount of self-awareness, a certain amount of looking at who we are and how we're accomplishing things and admitting, at least at times, it may not be good enough yet. Um, And that is extraordinarily difficult for us to do. It shows up in lots of areas besides just learning, um, but it's absolutely core to our ability to learn and improve.
0: Right, so how do you tell a team to look for things that they don't know to look for? You know, How do you get a team to get themselves into the double loop?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it can happen in, in a handful of different ways. I mean, it, you, know, you brought up earlier this point around failing, right? People who haven't traditionally failed much. And so then the question, you know, is often, well, have they not failed much? You know, because they haven't pushed the boundaries far enough, um, have they not failed much because they were lucky, um, or have they not failed much because they won't admit uh, the <laughs> failure, <a> failure. <laughs> that actually has occurred? Um, and you know, the first and the third are very self-focused. The second one um, is the harder. You know, maybe you've just managed to pull it off every time. Um, you know, I think at least when I work with teams, a lot of what we'll do is talk about projects, right? And we'll talk about, okay, you know, when you look at this project that you just tried, you know, how how innovative was it? How much were you really pushing the boundaries? And that's where a a kind of click often occurs is they'll realize, hey, this was an incremental product. This was the same thing we've always done. Yes, we've improved performance by 5%. That's great. Um, but it wasn't, you know, something dramatically different. Um, and, you know, so that's that first challenge really around, um, you know, that you're not trying things that are innovative enough, um, And so, you know, I think around that um, there are a handful of challenges that we can get into um, of helping people appreciate how we balance bad versus good outcomes, how we think about that, and how that frames out outcomes. Um, But that's a big piece of the puzzle: um, is getting folks to try to step back and see what are we really doing? Is it good enough? Is it going to position us for long-term success? And often, unfortunately, the answer is no.
0: And and you mentioned failure; that's a really big key to. Not wanting to learn is being afraid of failing. You have, what's the term? How do you pronounce it?
2: No, uh, etichophobia. Okay. Uh, uh, Yeah. A a clinical fear of failure.
0: And- is there any kind of research on how many of us have a clinical fear of failure?
2: You know, not that I could find okay. uh, of, of actually being diagnosed with it. I, th- I think the answer is probably reasonably small to get to that level of diagnosis. Certainly, I think anecdotally, my experience in organizations is the vast majority of organizations have uh, kind of a tickaphobia uh, that, you know, it's funny. I'd worked as a venture capitalist for a while uh, spending lots of time with startups. And so, you know, this idea of ready, fire, aim of fail fast to succeed. I mean, it, it's mantra these days, right? Everybody has the stickers on their laptops, you know, that sort of thing. But when you actually talk to individuals, Hey, how well does your organization deal with failure? Unfortunately, most people would say not well at all. Right. And so even if, if clinically we're not there, I think most organizations sadly are there.
0: Yeah. Um, I love the research that you cite in your book, that instead of embracing opportunities to learn from failure, people usually avoid it. And so you talk about this study where uh, people did 360 reviews. Yep. And whenever they would get a negative review from somebody, and they knew who was giving them the 360 reviews, they would just not invite that person to review them the next year.
2: Yep. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it's back to this. Um, your initial question, right? Are Are you always successful, or are you convincing yourself you're always successful? And we have kind of very strong urges to protect ourselves from negative feedback. Um, And in that case, you know, it was uh, if somebody gave you kind of a a review less than yours, then you were dramatically more likely to simply drop them the next year. Pretend like they didn't exist. Right.
0: And and most of the time in large scale projects, companies don't even look for feedback that could be negative. I mean, that's the key problem. One of the things I like to talk about are zombie projects. So they're not successes, but they're not obvious failures. They're just sucking the life out of your company without producing any kind of results. But we keep them going because we don't have anything that we're not looking for any evidence that shows that they're not working.
2: Well, and and it's many times we're kind of actively convincing ourselves that it's going better than we thought, right? It was a project that was designed uh, to uh, kind of launch a new product to increase revenue. We've launched it. It's not going great. Um, but we make an argument, well, no, no, it wasn't increased revenue we wanted here. It was filling in this tiny gap in the product portfolio. And so really, we need to keep going here because it's enabling you know these other things that we're doing. And so we come with, up with these increasingly complicated excuses um, that you know are loosely tied to reality. So if you don't push too hard, you don't look at the data, maybe you can believe them. Um, but we end up kind of lying to ourselves, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. A CEO once told me that nobody ever misses their forecasts. None of his executives ever miss their goals for the year because every quarter they just revise their goals for the year to yep. meet with what they're already doing. And so it, He said, I just started looking at them from the beginning of the year, noticing that they were dramatically different from what we were doing at the end of the year. Yeah,
2: right. We come up with kind of counterfactual like, oh, the world has gotten worse. You know, the economy's down. And so, of course, 5% is more appropriate than 8%. Uh, And so we'll kind of lower goals and then we'll shift them entirely. Um, Oh, it's not revenue. It's profit we wanted. Oh, it's not, you know, profit. It's cost reduction. It's not, you know, those sorts of things. You
0: know, what's interesting is so many of those reasons are external. So whenever I go into organizations and I say, you know, list you list your big goal for the year and they'll say, you know, we're trying to grow this much or we're trying to achieve this. And I'll say, what are all the things standing in your way? And they start listing the economy and um, everything that's going on with competitors. But it's almost always external. To me, that's kind of a gauge of whether you have a learning organization, mm-hmm. because if you start saying, well, we're not doing this well enough and we're, we I need to improve on this. That's how I know mm-hmm. that you are really self-aware and good at learning? Because it always comes back to things you could be doing better. Do you have a gauge like that for organizations? Yeah, absolutely.
2: I mean, so I think you're highlighting one of the challenges when we look at these pieces um, is we're trying to figure out take failure. We're trying to figure out, hey, what's it me or was it some other outside situation, right? Um, and anytime you know, we're trying to sell a product, you know, we're launching something new, whatever it might be, we're interacting with a customer. You know, it's a mix of things I do that I work at, and, you know, the customer is just really grumpy that day, or, you know, I wasn't going to win the deal because it was the somebody's nephew in uh, a competitor, and they were always going to give it, you know, to elsewhere. Um, one of the things that uh, research shows us is this idea of an attribution bias, that as we try to make sense of failure actions for ourselves were weighing, was it me? Was it the situation? Well, I know how hard I work. I know how good I am. It couldn't have been me. must have been the situation, <laughs> right? When we flip it around, we look at other people, we do just the opposite. Um, we blame it on the person, not the situation. So we did some research looking at cardiac surgeons. And in their case, failure is unfortunately a patient dying. Uh, and so what we saw was that for those surgeons, when they had patients die, they didn't learn from it. Um, that they didn't internally attribute it. They pushed it off. Oh, they were too sick. Nobody could have saved this patient. They actually learned from others' failures, interestingly enough. Um, So there they were able to kind of glean those lessons. I think how it ties to what you're saying is this really important piece of recognizing, yeah, when something goes wrong, there are always complex reasons. Some of those reasons are external. It wasn't just you. But what can you control? Well, you can control yourself. And so if you really are willing to look and say, okay, what could I have done better? What could I have done differently? You know, then that's a dramatic difference in how most people are going to tackle it.
0: Yeah, so when I didn't make the basketball team, I wasn't like, you know, I should rethink everything I know about fitness and nutrition. I I was like, those coaches are the worst basketball coaches ever because every practice started with running. And that's (laughs) clearly not the point of basketball. The point of basketball is shooting, which I had been practicing. And they just skipped like the most valuable part. So they didn't even get to see me do that part. Um, And the other thing that I said to myself was, well, I'm just not a runner. I just made a declaratory yep. statement. That's just not something that I'm good at. And, and so many people in their work will make those kinds of excuses to yep. protect their ego mm-hmm. from, the, from the shame that, that failure could bring.
2: Yes. No, it's right. I mean, it's back to this kind of, we work really hard to protect our identities. And I think that you know one of the things that was interesting for me, so I'm an operations professor when I started studying learning 15 years ago, I thought, oh, it's just a story of processes. If we put the right processes in place, then everything else flows through. You know, I'm a recovering engineer. Uh, it's kind of perfectly, <laughs> perfectly logical, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, just you know, fix the system that way. And, and then very quickly, not surprisingly, you see kind of the People matter, right? Yeah. Uh, and so now you know, I've come to appreciate over that time I'm an operations professor who is also a behavioral scientist and so integrates the two. Um, but you know, it doesn't matter what process you put in place if we don't address this issue of, you know, we're likely to lie to ourselves. And and there are differences across people, but on average. When we can, we protect ourselves from negative things. And so, you know, we have to think about how can I structure it so I I get some of that feedback in. I admit the responsibility that I have in the action without kind of utterly and completely, you know, blowing myself apart so that I can't get out of bed in the morning.
0: And what's interesting is that we even protect ourselves by saying negative things about ourselves. Like, yep. I'm not a runner. Yep. But I say that to protect myself from I didn't do the right things to right. practice for those. Yeah. That it,
2: it's not my fault that I didn't make the team. You right. Know, I'm not a runner. And so now I'm going to move in another direction. Uh, and debate. Yeah. High school debate. Well, that was,
0: <laughs> I'm just guessing that was probably a yeah. good choice. So like was, stumbled into your better. strength <laughs> that way.
2: Uh, well done. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Thank you. So, OK, we don't really learn from failure because we don't recognize failure yep. when it's happening. But we really don't learn from success. Right. Because when we are successful, we just assume that 100 percent of the things that we did were successful. Like some companies have after action reviews when things don't work out. Some, not all, but nobody has an after action review if something is deemed to be successful.
2: Yeah, I mean so thankfully you know we see so the the army is a good example of this that that does after action reviews in all cases but they are really the exception that uh, that proves the rule um, the challenge we think is hey if, if it turned out well then it means my process must have been good I must have you know followed things the right way um, and then of course we say if it turned out poorly that means you know my process was poor um, when of course we know the world is far more complex than that right it's not kind of a yes no one zero you know sort of way um, that if we really want to learn you know as much as I just not Processes saying they're not perfect. They're not. (laughs) um, But they are a great way for us to try to understand how does A connect to B, right? That you know, in the things that really matter, um, there's always going to be uncertainty. There's always going to be variants that maybe you did a great job and you lost this time. Maybe you did a poor job and you won that time. Um, And so we have to think about for again ourselves, for our teams importantly, uh, for our organizations more broadly, how do we put in those after action reviews? How do we run them in a way so it's not a blame game? I'm saying, oh yeah, was totally really Diana's fault. Definitely blame Diana. Uh, but rather, we're each looking, okay, this is what went on. This is what we each could have done differently. And importantly, you know, this is how we're going to change going forward so we increase our chance of success.
0: When you don't learn from your failures, you waste a lot of time. And when you wait in line to send your mail or your packages, you waste a lot of time. So stop wasting all that time and avoid any confusion around finding the best postal rates for your business. With SendPro Online from Pitney Bowes, you can send packages and mail without leaving your office right from your desk for as low as four ninety nine a month.
1: A few things that you can do with all this time you've saved. You could spend more quality time with your children. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could grab a few minutes to meditate, be a little more grounded.
0: Yeah, those are important. And for being a professional AF listener, you'll receive a free 30-day trial to get started. And as an added bonus, you'll also receive a free 10-pound scale shipped right to your door to help you accurately weigh your packages. Starting at $4.99 a month, you can print shipping labels and stamps from your own printer. Easily compare rates using the online software, gain access to special USPS savings for letters and priority mail shipping, and track all your shipments and get email notifications when they've arrived.
1: Pretty much whenever I have a few minutes of extra time, and this kind of shows my age, I spend it stretching.
0: (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) Just go to com slash professional, like the professional that you are when you're getting ready to ship all those packages and all that mail to access this special offer and get a free 30-day trial. Plus, don't forget, the free 10-pound scale to get started. That's com slash professional. Experience the better way to ship with a free trial of Senpro Online from Pitney Bowes. So you had this... Great study in the book about examining basketball coaches and how they acted after wins and losses. And after losses, they were much more likely to reshuffle everything, the positions Mm -hmm. of everybody. But after wins, even though they were really, really close. Yep they did nothing.
2: Yeah. I mean, so what's so fascinating about that research is it shows in the extreme that makes sense, right? If you win by a lot, you don't change. If you lose by a lot, then you change. But when you get to kind of that zero point, you win by a point, you lose by a point, effectively, uh, you know, it's it's luck. Did a shot go in either way? It's the same. Um, it's basically the same. A dramatic difference in their response, right? They're far more likely to make that change, you know, after the loss. And I think it highlights this, this outcome bias problem. Um, another study I love is, uh, is one that was done Done in the lab, uh, where they kind of gave people a choice, um, it was obvious which of the two choices was better. Kind of hundred percent of people chose it, and then they effectively randomly assigned. Did your choice work out or not? And so those groups that, or those individuals that had the decision not work out, completely out of their control, nothing they could have done. You know, looked back on their process and they said, "Oh, that was a bad process." I <laughs> it wasn't a bad process. They did exactly the right thing. It was a bad outcome. But we can't separate those two things out. We have this outcome bias. Um, That makes it really hard for us to take away kind of the key lessons for learning.
0: It really made me think of the world of politics, because I know so many politicians who have run in races and if they win, they feel like they're a political consultant now and everything they did. That's the secret sauce to getting elected, when in reality, it's a very, very complex schema of things that are. You know, going well or not. And we're not really examining what works. No.
2: And I think, I mean, the next couple of years are going to be painful leading up to the US presidential election. Because uh, as Nate Silver put, you know, we should be very careful drawing conclusions, you know, from an N of one. The 2016 election, you know, there are things we are still trying to figure out what happened here, there, et cetera. Um, but an N of one, um, right? It, it doesn't mean you could have just gotten lucky or unlucky as the case may be, um, which, you know, Cade Massey is a professor of mine who says, is, you know, the world would be a lot simpler if people understood variance, even a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, they're just distributions of possible outcomes. And sometimes the draw goes against you. All you can do is kind of step back, um, tweak what you can, and then try to get back out there and do it again. Uh, but that's hard to do on some of these infrequent events like a presidential election.
0: Yeah. But if you win, you're like, nothing to tweak here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Move along. Yeah, you know, keep repeating the same process. Yeah. Right? yeah. Uh, rinse and repeat. So, Uh, You have a curiosity section in your book, which obviously my favorite section of the book. (laughs) And uh, you have this quote, once a leader says, I think everybody else stops thinking. I thought that was so powerful.
2: Yeah, it's it's a great point. And it's one I think many of us can relate to of sitting around that conference room uh, and, you know, the senior most person in the room, we all walk in, um, they kind of perhaps maybe say, well, what do others think? Uh, and somebody starts talking and then they get interrupted. Well, I think we need to go this direction. And then if you're sitting around the table, you have this, you know, Okay, I know what the final decision is likely to be here. I have some information that I think is different from that. But is this the moment where kind of I push my chips all into the table, um, or do I just step back and you know? Okay, well they've uh, they've decided. Uh, And so as a leader, you know, we have to be willing to ask those questions, right? That that innate curiosity, not just for ourselves but for our teams. which is really hard to do for a bunch of reasons, but at least one is the team may present some information that's different than what you want to do. And so are you really willing to listen to that and be pushed in a new direction? Or are you so set, you know, we're launching this product, whatever it might be, that, you know, it doesn't matter what you say. uh, And so skip the meeting in the first place, frankly.
0: Yeah, well, that's a really important point. And you, you say in your book, getting things done involves answering questions, not asking more of them. So being curious... A lot of people don't want to be curious because they think it's going to slow the process down.
2: Well, and it will. We don't want to be curious. It's going to slow us down. And we're sometimes worried about what we're going to find out, right? If if kind of we really are honest to ourselves or to others, I've had these conversations too. Yeah, I'm, I'm really nervous about whether this product launch is going to work. And then kind of my natural follow-up will be, great. What questions can we ask to try to evaluate it? And they're, oh, no, we can't do that. Right. (laughs) The the, the train's out of the station. Like, we just got to, you know, kind of cross our fingers and hope, which is an incredibly silly way to approach things. Even if the product launch is still going to happen, we want to know what might go wrong so we can try to fix it. We can improve marketing. We can improve service. Maybe we can tweak it with engineering, whatever it might be.
0: And and they won't ask the question of why they're doing it in the first place. So, uh, you know, in a lot of organizations, they constantly revamp the website you know and they'll they'll come to me and they'll say we needed a new website here it is what do you think about the new website and I'll ask well how do we know if we just need to make another one and they're like I don't understand what you're saying (laughs) like we needed a website I made a website Mm -hmm. so that's it and I say well what are we measuring to figure out if it's effective or not if we need to tweak it again and it's just so hard to explain to organizations that Successful startups that version one never works. It's version five or six. And so you have to plan to iterate and to look at evidence that will show you that you need to iterate. And yet they are just so stuck in this. We're going to come up with a perfect plan. We're going to execute on our perfect plan and everything will be perfect.
2: Well, and I think it gets back to it's admitting what you don't know. Right. And I mean, it's kind of the power of the phrase. I don't know. It it assumes, hey, I I know exactly what customers want. And so I can perfectly plan it. You know, I can deal with all the technology kind of interactions and, and pieces here. And so one shot will do it. And you know, again, if you sit down with people um, and really can get them to let their guard down, they'll oh, of course, I don't know that, right? Of course, I need to get it out there, and that's why startups you know do it that way, and why kind of we get back to fail fast and things like that. But you know, we either will have to admit that it's going to go wrong, and it appears initially wasteful, even if in the long run it's uh, far better off. Um, and you know, that uh, level of um, you know, kind of vulnerability is one that uh, many people aren't uh, willing to uh, to put out there.
0: So I like to introduce two questions to every project and I call them failure metrics, nice. which, you know, people love. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. <laughs> my nicer way to say it is pivot indicators, ah, okay. you know, just yeah. some kind of indication. And those two questions are, how would we know if it wasn't working mm-hmm. and when would we know? Yep. And you are going to be so much more likely to find out faster in the project whether it's not working than yep. you will on whether it's going to be successful. And, People are afraid to implement those questions into their Projects? Why? How do I get them to put those in?
2: Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting to hear you frame those questions out because it's very related to what um, psychologist Gary Klein calls a pre-mortem—that before we launch a project, um, that we should basically have people sit down and say, "Hey, you know, imagine it's six months from now and everything has gone off the rails. Um, why did we fail? And when we get people to do that, um, it's interesting—they can come up with some really good reasons. And the great thing is then we can incorporate them, right? Um, similar to what you're talking about there. Um, you know. I find different approaches work in different organizations. I mean, with respect to um, these sorts of things, I try to turn to data. Um, I try to find, you know, data either from within the company, ideally, if I've been working closely with them of, hey, let's look at our product launches. What percent are actually successful along the metrics that have been proposed from the beginning? And I mean, almost to a T, unless they've been able to redefine them, the numbers are awful Yeah. um, because waterfall type planning, like you're talking about, um, you know, doesn't set you up for long-term success. And so that is a way, often you have to start a little higher in the organization to try to get it to cascade down. Um, but, you know, when people look at the numbers and they say, huh, a third of our product launches are successful. Well, maybe, you know, going with the status quo isn't our best bet here. And so I think there are a couple things going on, right? I mean, one is there is an element of overconfidence um, that if we look at the data, you know, pick any context you want, you can you can show kind of raw data, you can ask people questions. And of course, we all think we are the one who's different, right? Whether that's kind of the business project case, uh, kind of one of my favorites, I mentioned in the book is, you know, business, uh, sorry, not business, professors in general asked if they're above average and, you know, it's like 90 plus percent will say, yes, I'm an above average professor when you kind of do the math, and, <laughs> right? That, that doesn't really work out, um, you know, and. And so it it is something that it's. Um, this is where experience is is often helpful. Um, that you know. Um as you can show them um, that data and they can have experienced it. So they realize, oh, you know, I really did have um, one of the things I'll do sometimes is, OK, let's go back to your last project, you know, and let's walk through what happened. And so to get them to realize how similar these things are, um, because often those hands go up um, because they haven't really thought about it carefully and they don't want to look you know silly. And so instead it's, hey, everybody, we're going to come up with why your project is going to be in trouble, you know, and so you take the stigma off uh-huh. um, and then they can start to problem solve it, I think, in a fairly productive way.
0: Well, I like that talking about a past project because there's it's it's safer. Yeah. It's already done. They're not currently worried about it. Uh, I feel like they're going to be a lot more open to talking about it.
2: A lot of it is back to kind of we, had, we had talked about the leader saying, I think, is, is the leader setting up um, the environment for one that you can have the discussion. I mean, I would imagine you've seen this of, you know, you come in or I, you know, will come in, I'll be talking about the need for safety, the need for failure, and you can kind of see the senior leader next to you getting increasingly uncomfortable that, you know, no, that's not allowed here. Right. And then you have that same discussion of, well, what percentage? And and you just, it's clear they're not on board. They're, they're in their own kind of cone of, you know, um, in, you know invincibility yeah. um, as they think about it. And so there, then I shift a little bit to try to talk to them about their role in setting people up, right? Would you rather know about a problem sooner or later? And, and usually then they'll start, well, of course, I want to know about it sooner <laughs> um, so I can address it. Okay, if you, you know, chop somebody's head off as soon as they tell you about a problem, how likely are they to share the next one with you? okay, maybe slightly less. Yeah, a lot more than slightly less likely. Um, And so kind of walking them through some of that as a leader, setting up those conditions to make it okay.
0: So much of this is kind of dictated by the leader. I feel like that's a really big takeaway for people listening. If you have a team that you're in charge of, or you want to be in charge of one, you have to be you're not just another participant in the meeting. You have to be really careful about the tone that you're setting with the words you use.
2: Yeah, no. And, and I think, you know, it's interesting, especially if you're kind of in the middle of the organization, sometimes people get frustrated because they look up and they've got this boss that that's like that, but recognizing you still have the ability to shape your team, you know, with these approaches right of getting people to share getting them to take appropriate risks not you know anything they want you know but defining kind of the the you know sandbox they get to play in um and then protecting um above as we go along and what's great if you lead like that is not only will your chance of success go up um, but other people are going to look around and say you know hey I'd, I'd like to be on mary's team or i'd like to be on whomever it is um and so then folks start to flock to you and and that growth opportunity may create itself
0: well, that sounds pretty good if they just follow the simple process of, of continuous learning.
2: Yeah. Uh, although I think as, as we've chatted, right, it's uh, it's simple in steps. It's hard to do it over and over and over again.
0: Well, so while the curiosity section should be my favorite, it wasn't. My favorite section was the one about bias towards action yep. and how our need to act is seriously hurting our learning. I will say that in my space of lean startup and design thinking, there is a mantra called bias towards action. Yep. Bias towards action is good, right? That's what you're looking for. So that, that piqued my curiosity, you know, about nice. how it could be such a terrible thing. So I, I, I want to talk about how we learn best by working less, by having less of a bias towards action.
2: Yeah, and it's funny. I think as, as I've thought about that one, um, I've tweaked it slightly to, to call it a bias for activity um, to maybe pull yeah. it and to, to highlight the difference. Um, you know, the challenge is, if we think about Lean Startup and kind of some of these other approaches, then there is this idea of, hey, ready, fire, aim, right? And so it's, hey, you know, figure out the question you're answering, go do it and figure out what works, and then step back and think about it, right? And then you keep repeating that cycle over and over again and if that's the approach people take great unfortunately what i typically see is it's not ready fire aim it's ready fire 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 <laughs> fire um as right they're just cycling again and yeah. again and never pulling back and and that's really kind of where the issue is that if we think about learning, um, you know, and get into the learning theory, a lot of it is action reflection cycles. You do something, you think about what you did, you adjust, you go do it again. And those action reflection cycles get broken in a bunch of ways. One, as we talked about earlier, you kind of you know lie to yourself about what's really happening, and so you're not getting good information. Um, another way they they break though is that you don't you don't do it. You don't you don't see the connection. And reflection is something that I think most of us, myself included really struggle with. So a lot of my research is me-search, questions that kind of bugged me. Um, and one of these is in reflection. So kind of when I was a participant in learning programs, they might have a reflection component and I'd roll my eyes and <laughs> kind of doodle on a page and not do it. And then suddenly as a professor, I was asking people to do these and felt more than a little hypocritical uh, about it. So with some colleagues, um, we've done a number of different studies. Um, one we did, we taught somebody, people something new in the lab. We then asked them to choose to reflect or to keep practicing it, and then they did did it again. We saw 80% of people chose to keep practicing. The reflectors performed dramatically better. We did it again. This time we randomly assigned you reflect or you act. The reflector still did better. We went out into the field. We worked with a tech services company in their training program, kind of the short version, a six-week training program, randomly assigned people to a reflection condition, just 15 minutes at the end of the day. What are two things you learned um, versus another group that just did the full nine hours of training? the end of that six-week training program, the reflectors did about 25% better uh, on the exam they had to take to qualify for the job, about 10% better in customer satisfaction. Um, What we see again and again is reflection activates a different part of the brain is what neuroscience tells us. So if we want to learn most effectively, yes, we need to do, but we have to take that time to think. And that because of this bias for activity this need to constantly be doing things we think if we look around and somebody just kind of sitting there staring up at the sky oh yeah there's brad daydreaming why is he wasting his time you know that's absolutely critical even if we can't tell the difference between he's thinking about a sporting event versus he's thinking about the project um and so we have to internalize that that if we want to be successful we're gonna to have to find the time to think
0: Support for professional AF comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Choose a template that you love and customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos.
1: You know how uh, when there's something you've never heard of and then all of a sudden you learn about it and you see it everywhere? Yes. So that's what happened to me with Wix because I didn't know about Wix and then we started doing these ads. And like today, for instance, I was talking to a friend. He has a website with a great online store and I was complimenting it. And he was like, actually, I used Wix. No way. Yeah.
0: <laughs> with hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way that you want. Want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google.
1: Or Bing or Yahoo or <laughs> probably even Friendster. Did
0: you say Bing? Yeah, MySpace. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast, as long as you're not driving. Right. Right. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website, so create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com, that's W-I-X dot com slash professional A-F to get your 10% off. Professional AF is brought to you by Skillshare. I love this advertiser because it's the perfect complement to what we're trying to do on this show. Skillshare is an online learning community for creators with more than 25,000 classes in design, business, and more. You'll discover countless ways to fuel your curiosity, creativity, and your career. Take classes on social media, marketing, mobile photography, creative writing, or even illustration.
1: Do they have classes in singing?
0: Oh, They have learn how to sing in 10 lessons, how to improve your voice daily, learn how to sing high notes in nine lessons.
1: I've always wanted to learn how to sing.
0: That high voice one, especially, right?
1: If you you can teach me how to sing (laughs) high notes, you're very, very good.
0: Whether you're looking to discover a new passion, start a side hustle, or gain a new professional skill, Skillshare is there to keep you learning and thriving. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special gift just for our listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free.
1: It's cool to have little skills, uh, especially when you have kids. Like, I learned how to type fast in school like most of us did. And True thinks the fact that I can type quickly is like a, a superpower. He's so impressed by it.
0: They have a class on Skillshare to learn how to type even faster, Jason.
1: I mean, he's also, though, very impressed that I can tie my own shoes.
0: (laughs) That's right. Skillshare is offering professional AF listeners two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Diana. Again, that's Skillshare.com slash Diana. D-I-A-N-A to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash Diana. Most people, what they don't understand is they, they have a process at which point they start being protective of their time. And that process is when they've completely run out of it. Yep. <laughs> right. So I, I analogize this to the storage on my phone. So I will let my phone fill up all the way, you know, and it'll nice. be like no more photos. Yep. And at that point, I become very discerning about what I'm going to take a picture of, what app I'm going to download on my phone. So what if we just did that? But when yep. we were at... Fifty percent capacity. We had that same level of protection of our time to make room for that kind of reflection.
2: But well, and I think it's it's the habit um, is what it's back to, right? That once we've run out of time, then trying to cram it back in, it's, it's almost too late for whatever we're working on. How do we make this a part? Of our day-to-day life. Um, and whether that's kind of your commute in in the morning, we've seen value of doing a little bit of kind of planning before the day as you think about things, whether it comes at the end of the day, the end of the week, it's a evening, you know, there's lots of ways to structure it based on your own uh, kind of circadian rhythm and uh, approach to, to thinking about all of this. Um, but it requires intentionality because I think, you know, one one of the activities I'll do with people is I'll get them to pull out their calendar and look at their calendar mm-hmm. and tell them, you know, where in your calendar is their time for thinking? Yeah. Um, and all you see is kind of colors as yeah. it's full of the various <laughs> meanings. And they have this, oh, there's not, right? And for certain people, that's okay. Maybe, I mean, maybe, you know, you're just doing and your job is to, you know, to execute. Um, but for almost all, that's going to be a problem.
0: Yeah. And the biggest problem with this bias towards action is that we feel guilty if we're not doing something that feels like we're working. My favorite study from the book was about goalies and when they protected goals. I think I'm going to start incorporating that in speeches. So you'll know where it came from when you hear it. (laughs)
2: Uh, No, I mean, it's great research, right? And it basically shows uh, looking at professional goalies and penalty kicks, you know, um, do they dive to the left or to the right? And so the study kind of looked at the data and it shows they're, they're basically split evenly uh, between diving to the left and the right. But um, almost a third of the time, the ball comes right back up the middle. Uh, and so what the researchers found, they went back, they talked to goalies, say, hey, why, you know, why didn't you just stay in the middle and incorporate that more often? Because
0: they go to the left or right. Like almost 90% of them. Yeah. They do yeah, something, yeah, yeah. one or the other, but they almost don't always. stay in the they middle. They
2: almost never stay in the middle. Um, you know And why don't you you uh, stay in the middle? And it's, well, if somebody scores a goal, they kick and the ball goes out to either side, um, then people are going to look at me and say, Yo, hey, what what are you doing, right? Why didn't you at least try to stop the ball, right? <laughs> um, well, on the other hand, if you, if you dove and it's the wrong way and you've got your face full of dirt, nobody's going to say, oh man, Brad should have tried it. it's He gave everything he had, he just went the wrong way. And I think that kind of story fits very well in most of our business contexts. So we want to you know have the face full of dirt so even if it didn't work out people are you know applauding us um, when you know the thoughtful strategy would not be to always stay in the middle but to incorporate that as a goalie um, as we go along and so this regret of not being seen as doing things um, ends up leading to significantly worse performance sadly
0: and not just the the fear of not being seen as working, but that we have a bias towards completing small tasks that are not really, really important on our to-do list because it feels more productive. Is that right? It is. I mean, so so we get a high from completing activities. And so that's something that
2: we can use productively if we break down our big tasks into smaller pieces. We kind of build our way up. Then that's great. Unfortunately, my guess is most listeners can think of that time where you stared at your inbox. You had those one or two things that were you know kind of terrifyingly large. And so instead of you know digging in, you divert to well I'm going to knock out these really small things. Um, and so then you know for the hour that you do it, you feel pretty good as you're completing these activities. And suddenly your day's gone, and these two things that are going to determine your success or failure on the project haven't been touched at all. Um, and so we have kind of a completion bias almost um, that we really have to be careful with.
0: Yeah. I like to ask people to list out their like big goals for the year or the quarter and then say, okay, what did you do today? Yep. And how many of those things have anything to do with those big goals? And usually not none, none. zero. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: So instead, they should really start with the big goals and, yep. and say, what can I do to help one of these goals today? And then I'll get to that other stuff.
2: Yeah. I mean, so I think that prioritization is a real challenge. Um, and what's interesting in some research we did in hospitals and emergency departments is we found that as people got busier, in this case, it was emergency department physicians, um, they were actually more likely to take on kind of those easy, less important tasks, um, in this case, kind of patient severity. Um, and so we have to, you know, as as we get swamped, we become a little more narrow in our focus. And so we may end up Sort of shooting ourselves in the foot um, of you're applying to the email for the birthday party for a colleague um, that's in three weeks rather than you know actually figuring, okay, this customer is irate, how do I deal with them in a way that you know in long term is going to assure success?
0: So you're not just a learning consultant, are you also a less busy consultant?
2: Uh, I find the two go together, yeah. Um, frankly, that you know, um, you know, what's interesting is. You know, for a while, I would say kind of productivity was the area of focus. And so this is kind of back to the initial question you asked of do less to do more. Um, and so in thinking about productivity, I thought about it a lot of how do I structure the day more effectively. Because um, I would come home at the end of the day and, you know, my wife and I'd be talking about what we each got done. And each of us would say, oh, yeah, I didn't get nearly enough done today. And that was always the answer. It didn't matter how much we got done, right? <laughs> you always didn't get enough done. Um, and, and I think what I've come to appreciate in stepping back is that, you know, time management is not irrelevant, um, but there's a lot more of of attention, right? Where do you put your attention? What are those important things um, in the prioritization? And those are what are going to determine not only your success or failure, but also kind of your enjoyment typically, right? That, uh, you know, how you're going to proceed productively um, isn't in knocking out all those little things. It's going to be making progress on the big stuff.
0: I like to think about my time as an investment. So I have like a handful of dollars Yep. And, and you think about like what's going to pay off in the end. And as you think about your task list of everything that you have to, do, what would you give your money to, Mm -hmm. to say, what's going to give me the biggest payoff in the future? And most people, they don't... Think about it. They they don't mm. understand the value of time in their life. They feel like it's the cheapest resource they have when it's yep. actually the most valuable.
2: Yeah, no, it's absolutely the dearest kind of our our, our attention um, is perhaps the most critical asset that we have. And where do we put that attention? The time, as you're saying, um, you know, is in any organization what determines whether it moves forward productively or not.
0: And there's so many great examples of overconfidence bias in the book, but one of them has to do with this. Uh, topic of attention and being busy and we're just not functioning as well when we're working at 100% capacity and We always think that it affects other people, but it doesn't affect us. Like I can go on four hours sleep and be great, but most people can't.
2: No, I mean I love the research that's getting done on sleep these days, um, because that's one. It's always it's always bothered me that why am I this annoying person that I have to sleep seven or eight hours a day, or else I I would tell that I was less uh, kind of effective. Um, And why can't I be like everybody else? And what the research shows is actually I'm not that different. Most of us can't function well unless we get the seven or eight hours of sleep. We just lie to ourselves about it (laughs) um, as we. Going. There's a very small segment uh, that can, but it's tiny. Uh, as we look at uh, as we look at statistically,
0: that statistically, it's not you if yeah. you're listening to yeah, the yeah, show. exactly.
2: Um, <laughs> you're you not did, in that group. Yeah, you're, you're not sadly. Uh, um, but I, but I think it does get to you know kind of if we think just about physiology for a minute and 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 this um, that whether it's sleep. Whether it's during your day, taking breaks and actually pulling away from the work, um, many of us, oh, I've got to work you know at my desk over lunch. Uh, you know, I don't have enough time to to get away uh, to go for that short walk outside. You know, what the research shows again and again um, is you know the productivity gain you get from being rested. Um, you know, if you show up to sleep, if you excuse me, if you show up to work consistently with too little sleep, it's like showing up to work. You know, having had a couple of drinks before the day starts. And I think most of the listeners would say it's a bad idea to do tequila shots right before you walk in the door. <laughs> Uh, but you know four hours of sleep which well you know that's just part of that's part of life right um, so that sleep piece and then you know we did some research looking at breaks and what i found really interesting in that work was that we found uh, that people kind of would have these unexpected breaks um, these were this was more manual labor but there's been work done in knowledge context too um, and these unexpected breaks took actual time away from work. So now they weren't able to be productive during that time, but over the course of their entire day, they got more done, right? And so this chance to recharge our bodies, sometimes it's physiological, um, our chance to recharge our minds, to give ourselves, you know, this opportunity to kind of rest you know, um, collect our thoughts um, is incredibly important. And a part of this broader story of, you know, we really do need to often slow down if we're going to get things done.
0: You know, along the lines of the reflection conversation that we were having, I have noticed that how I read books for this podcast is very different than I was reading books before because Mm. I'm reading them to prepare for an interview. So throughout the book, I'm including questions that I want to ask the author. I'm reflecting on what it is that I'm reading and then I'm connecting the ideas in the book to things in my own life so that I can say smart, relevant things (laughs) on the show. Um, And that significantly helps my retention and my comprehension. I'm reading a book every four or five days, and I know every research study from every book that I've read. Like, I can keep them so clear in my head. And that has been such a huge aha for me.
2: No, I mean, I do think what's interesting – the point you're making of we can structure that time for thinking, right? That it, it's not, hey, I'm doing and everything is kind of go, go, go. And now that I'm thinking it's I'm laying on a couch and or outside and, you know, kind of just letting my mind go. There's a place for that, like kind of the um, kind of completely unstructured thinking. Shower. Um, it's but yeah, shower. shower is a good one. Um, <laughs> I'm a fan. I'm a fan of that one, too. I like running uh, to do that and kind of letting uh, letting my mind wander. Um, but recognizing that we can guide the thinking process right now, Now, you know. Are you when you're when you're thinking about interview questions? Are you necessarily going to kind of come up with that idea that sparks the next book? Maybe, maybe not, right? Um, because now you've you've structured it in a way um, that is pointed at something. Um, but that's kind of the, the the I think an important takeaway is that you know it's a continuum. It's not you know either I'm doing or I'm thinking, but recognizing kind of all along there I can put some structure to help me accomplish different things.
0: Yeah, I try to have every episode result in some kind of behavior change for myself. So uh, I've started adding 15 minutes after each interview that I do and after every presentation that I do for my very own after action review, where I try oh, to come up awesome. with three good things, three bad things. And it's just a simple thing, but you end up coming up with these big ahas that in the, while the adrenaline is going up and down, oh, you yeah. would have never noticed.
2: No. And, and I think the discipline that it forces, um, especially, you know, the good, build yourself up to highlight what you did well, highlight what you want to repeat. And the bad, you know, you can always fill out that list, right? It doesn't matter how well the talk went, how poorly the talk went. There's stuff on both sides. You're never as good as they say, never as bad as they say. And so being really disciplined lets you celebrate, but also find things to improve.
0: Yeah, the biggest danger is to start feeling like an expert. Right? (laughs) I mean, uh, one of my favorite quotes right now is certainty ends inquiry.
2: That's a good one. And
0: as soon as you know that, you got the hang of it, then you're going to stop getting better at it.
2: No, it's true. I mean, there's, there's this danger as we become an expert um, that we close things down. And, and I think the piece that I both love and hate in some ways uh, is the more I've learned about a topic um, you can kind of think a numerator and denominator, right? Um, Kind of what's your, your individual knowledge is the numerator, the denominator, what's the knowledge out there on the topic. Um, And, you know, I've yet to have, this not be the case, that when my numerator increases, I realize even more just how much knowledge there is to get out there. So my percent knowledge, I feel like, is always decreasing, (laughs) Uh, um, which is really frustrating because it's, you know, you are supposed to be an expert on certain things, and yet you realize just how much you don't know still.
0: Yeah, but that's the interesting thing about learning, that the least you know about a topic, the more confident you are about it. So people who just started CrossFit, no offense to CrossFitters or a certain kind of diet, Those are the people that are going to be the greatest evangelists for it because they feel like they got it down. And the more they start learning about it, they're like, well, you know, I still have to learn about this and I don't know how to do this. I I feel the exact same way.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, it's true. And we see that in, you know, all sorts of contexts, business contexts as well, um, that, uh, you know, kind of that that novice expert, so to speak, is uh, is often the most dangerous.
0: So the more confident you are, the less you know about your the less you know about your topic. Often,
2: yes.
0: (laughs) Okay, I want to cover working in teams last because it is the source of your PhD thesis. It is a topic of ever-increasing importance in my life. You talk about this really interesting concept where if you give people a picture of a Lego man that they're trying Mm -hmm. to build, a large Lego man, and you say, how many hours is it going to take for two people to build this person? They'll give you a number of hours. And then you say, okay, how many hours for four people to build this Lego structure? And they'll just half it. They'll yep. say four people, half the time, done. But that's not the case, is it?
2: No, it's not. And and so kind of, as you said, Teams is where I started a lot of my work and where I still spend a lot of time um, you know, one of the challenges that we consistently see is this idea of coordination neglect, um, that when we look at teams, you know, we think, um, great, I have four people, I divide the work up four ways and I go. Um, when of course, um, we know that as we bring people in, we've got to figure out how to work together. The whole reason we have a team in the first place, or at least why we should have a team in the first place, is there's interdependency. If the work is truly individual work, then great, don't even call it a team, just let each person do their thing and send it back to you and you can put it all together. But that's not the way the world works. We have lots of specialists. We need to integrate them for a coherent whole. Um, and so then the question is, if we neglect this coordination, first, how do we kind of raise people's attention so that they can see it and so that they can address it? Um, but then second, kind of what sort of processes can we put in place so that we'll work well together? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure from a kind of execution standpoint that there's any problem is insidious as insidious as that coordination one. I think it it wrecks. Uh, kind of more projects than anything else because we don't get the knowledge where we need it or combined in the right ways at the right times as we move along.
0: Yeah. You cite research that shows that if you just add man hours to a project that's already late, it yep. will be even more late.
2: Yeah. I mean, so any kind of a software uh, kind of listeners will know um, Frederick Brooks, uh, kind of old programmer at IBM, uh, System 360. And he wrote a book called The Mythical Man Month. And in it, uh, kind of we now have Brooks Law, which is is that, right? Adding, adding manpower to a late project makes it later. Um, And it's this idea that uh, you're already behind, you're trying to throw hours because you think it's divisible, but it's not. You're increasing dramatically the coordination problem. And that basic law applies, whether you're thinking about a late project or just a project at any stage um, that, you know, we've got to figure out how do we bring the team together? How do we make sure they understand the purpose? How do we define the communication channels? How do we do all of this, you know, spend all of this time that often we look at? That's not work. Work is actually, you know, coding or work is actually, you know, coming up with the strategic plan. And it's no, that work is again, kind of the go slow to go fast approach to teams.
0: And it's not just in the in what they produce as a team, but it's in the learning that they do as a team that you need that kind of coordination to make sure that you understand what everybody else on the team is learning and what they know.
2: Yeah, and and, I mean, I think part of it is how do you judge team performance? I love um, Richard Hackman, the team's expert. You know, kind of was big on to evaluate team performance. There were really three things that you needed to evaluate. One was you know the outcome, which obviously matters, and unfortunately that's where things typically stop. Um, But the other two are really important. A second, how did the team function together? How are they more likely to function? You know, whether it's jointly or moving into other team context. And then third, the individual learning that takes place. So kind of think of it as you know team outcome team learning, individual learning. And so once you start to to shine a light on those other two, um, that's how an organization repeats success over time.
0: Okay, Brad, any final thoughts for people who want to make learning a more important part of their lives? What steps should they take?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked a lot about failure, um, kind of the observation of let's understand what we did wrong. Um, asking that question to yourself, you know, what can I do better um, is a really powerful you know, way for us to address it. Um, this piece of reflection, finding some small slivers, even as busy as you are, it can be that drive home, that walk home, that bus ride home, um, you know, as you, as you try to make sense of things, um, but giving yourself a little bit of space to do that, uh, kind of the last piece of advice I'll give is is one from a dear departed mentor, Dave Upton, that uh, many years ago now, we had uh, a 30-minute meeting on the block, on the calendar, uh, had 90 minutes of material. Uh, You know, a smart person would have cut down the material. um, As an operations-minded individual, I said, well, great, I'll just talk three times as fast (laughs) uh, to make it all fit in. Uh, And so I'm flying through the meeting, 10 minutes in, I'm tracking uh, when Dave uh, kind of puts a hand on my shoulder uh, and uh, looks at me and I says, Brad, Don't avoid thinking by being busy. And so, you know, for everybody, myself included, uh, kind of I throw that mantra in there. Don't avoid thinking by being busy so that you, too, can never stop learning.
0: Awesome. Brad, thank you so much. Thanks. Holy guacamole, was that an amazing conversation about learning and curiosity? You know, this episode felt a little bit different to me than some of the others this season, and I would love to hear what you think about it. This morning, I posted a note in the private Facebook group for this show. The group is called Professional AF Podcast Insiders. And in my note, I listed out all the ways that I thought this episode was a little bit different. And now I am just eagerly waiting for your thoughts. Yep, while on your walk or traveling for work or making a delicious meal, just grab your phone for a second and just let me know what you thought about it. Oh, and uh, while you've got that phone in your hand, can you do me a big favor and share and review the show? I heard the coolest story this week. A friend of mine texted me to share that she was out at lunch with the head of HR of this big company and she was just about to recommend the show to the woman when that woman recommended it to my friend. First of all, thank you guys for doing this. And second, don't stop now. I know that you've got a number of friends who would benefit from this episode on learning and they're gonna thank you for sharing it with them. And when you review the show, Even if it's just selecting a number of stars on the podcast app, it zooms us up into the new and noteworthy section so that more and more people can find the show. Last week, thanks to your ratings, we got into the new and noteworthy section of business shows. So if you haven't had a chance, please take a second and rate and review the show. I can't thank you enough for everything you've done so far. All the support, all the encouragement, sharing the show with your networks, inviting a lot of people that you know to the private Facebook group. I so appreciate each and every member of this team, which is what it's really starting to feel like. I am Diana candor and I am on a mission to turn curiosity into your superpower. Because once you start asking better questions, you are going to get much better results. Talk to you soon.